Hey, this is the uh, February 2019 special episode for yeah. our patrons. Number two. Number two. Yeah. Um, and you just heard Orion, the Metallica song, if Wait, you didn't know that. That's from Metallica? It's oh, from Metallica. That's really interesting. It's from the album. Master of Puppets. Uh, so we took to heart when uh, we were <laughs> called out in a letter on our 200th episode that we've uh, almost gone to great lengths to avoid Metallica. <laughs> We uh, talk about them in almost every yeah, single we episode. we do. We do. And so we thought, eh, it might be a good idea if we, we kind of get this, you know, clear the table a little bit with a with a patron episode. Um, but it's it's always been that question mark. How do we how do we kind of approach, you know? Well, it's it, Metallica. Metallica is kind of like our like our first real like awesome girlfriend mm-hmm. who made us feel certain things that we measure everything else kind of up against, really. Yeah, and it's like good memories, bad memories because there yeah. was some there's been some disappointment uh, through the years. There's been some letdowns, like the breakup, you know, so yeah. it's some emotional scars here and there. But it's like, uh, you know, I'm friends with a lot of my exes now, and, and, and I think I have some perspective on some of the bad decisions that either I made or we both made or they made. And I've kind of come to terms with, with some of those eras of Metallica. Like, mm-hmm. I can... I can pull some songs off of Load and Reload that I don't hate. I don't put those records on as a singular whole. Um, I've never really spent any time with St. Anger. It's not really something... I'm sure there's something that's maybe of value to it, but maybe there isn't, and I don't care. And it's fine. I'm okay with that. I I think I can live my life and and be okay with that. Well, recently, I'm trying to think who the hell asked me this, but they asked me what I thought of um, basically like past classic era Metallica. Yeah. And I said, you know, they made some of the best, most, at least most effective albums that affected my life as a teenager. Yeah. I cannot imagine them ever going any further on the track they were on. Yeah. And like they accomplished everything they wanted to accomplish in a very comparatively to now, like a music career, you know, from what, 1980 when they, did they form in 80? 81. 81-ish? 80, yeah, 81. To like 90? No Light to Leather is 82, I think. You know. Within like 10 years, they created some records that are just like undeniable. People still go back to like, yeah. you have that, you can't, where could you possibly go after the Black Album? Yeah, you kind of own a decade, you yeah. know, in terms of like uh, a block of sort of metal history, you know. And I went through like, uh, all of us have, I mean, anybody that has lived more than 20 years. As you hit these points, you know, kind of like places where you can't, you know, you can't imagine going any, like that's just kind of the end of it, mm-hmm. it seems like. But then you go out and you, you know, you discover this other type of music or this other, you know, type of food or you move somewhere else. Like we can't all be on that same, like there's no way they could have done like 12 albums that were that sure. good. Well, and, you know. And I understand why they did what, the, like they got completely away from it. Yeah. Everybody cut their hair all makes sense to me in yeah. retrospect. Yeah. Well, and there's just, there's like different eras where like our perception of things are sort of different. And there was a, there was a moment and I kind of said to you that I think what's interesting about Metallica is they, they I, you know, they almost get crucified for it, but in a way, I think maybe a different way of looking at it is maybe we should like kind of um, give honors to them for being ahead of the curve and noticing that thrash was going to kind of come to an end before any of their contemporaries did. You know, they get and kind it, of. I'm sure it wasn't like a conscious decision. No, but I think it was. It was like kind of internal subconscious. But know? they, yeah, they were always they're pushing themselves so hard. Yeah, like the you know first record came out, 
nobody could hold a candle to that. Mm-hmm. No, the, I think the biggest thing they did is capture the live sound on a record. Yeah. Or the closest approximation thereof. They took the, the, the speed of Motorhead. They took the, you know, just some of the aggression of, of the punk that they were sort of absorbing. And, mm-hmm. you know, you got the melodies of New Album sort of mixed in there. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Kill em All is like rough. Yeah. In, in a good way. Like, yeah. it's not a bad yeah. thing. It's just, it's... It's not polished, you know. They didn't really have like great production at that point. Um, you know, Fleming Rasmussen, I mean, we were just kind of talking about him. He doesn't show up till Ride, mm-hmm. I believe. You know, when they actually kind of get like a proper understanding of, you know. And I'm sure when you went in with the, the material on Kill 'Em All, um, I got to look and see who actually. I forget who kind of produced that record. I don't remember. Um, yeah. Oh, John Zazulu. All right. Oh, okay. So, from Metal, from Megaforce. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to say whether or not he had a handle on what that music should even sound like, right? Like, no one knew how to capture speed and ferocity that like tough, that. That's the, been the biggest problem with, um, I think, with extreme music in general, is how, like, Venom, the idea, the visuals, it all looks great. Then you hear it on record, you're like, oh, that's what it sounds like? But yeah. seeing it at a concert yeah, would have been, like, a transformative, you know, experience for a kid. Or Motorhead, or mm-hmm. Motorhead were pretty, I think, pretty early on captured fairly accurately yeah and but i like think the that's first why people pretty, like pretty tame no sleep till hammersmith so much because yeah. it like i think it kind of there was a part of motorhead that is kind of like a live biker rock mm-hmm. the down rowdy kind of sound that, yeah. that they 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 got on record sometimes but i think live it, it maybe comes over a little bit better for sure you know but yeah kill them all uh you know it's an interesting record um it's never been my favorite Metallica. I know there are some people that, that you know, beloved that record as like the, you know, the epitome of Metallica that after that they, they sold out or I don't know. I've heard that before. I mean, there's some people I know that don't like Slayer Pass Show No Mercy because they're just like, ah, that was it. Yeah, you know, it's just so there's like a, there's it's so, it's it's, so the personal. internet's a funny place. You know, yeah. And everything. Stuff. So like the reason people were pissed about the reason I was let down by the black album is because I didn't discover Metallica back and kill them all or ride the lightning yeah like that wasn't like i wanted them to keep my i wanted my expectation to keep kind of going from where like the first thing i heard was master of puppets first thing i bought um was injustice for all which is hard to what do you do after that album Mm -hmm. and then the black album i thought was like in retrospect that's that's all you could have done really Mm -hmm. if you wanted to keep kind of going this track yeah it's um but it's like where you fall in and what your expectation there's, I mean, there's so many different criteria to like what. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, um, I forget his name, the journalist. He's now the, I think the, the editor in chief of, uh, Rolling Stone, um, Peter, he's got glasses. Oh no, it's David Frick. Yeah. Yeah. David Frick in a, um, documentary says he was, you know, after injustice for all, you know, he had a conversation with, with Hatfield and, and those guys and was like, how do you get heavier? Like, what do you, like, how do you get like more sonic than, than this? You know, um, you can't get really faster. You've kind of gotten like, you've done what, what you're going to do there. And there's some limitations, I think, when you talk about like Lars and, you know, sure, like yeah. what he can do to get, you know, he's not Dave Lombardo or, or Gene Hoglin. You know, he's not going to be he's able to take a conventional drummer yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so in a way it was like, the black album was like their attempt to sort of go back to square one a little bit, you know, with a new producer with a guy that got them all into one room to record, which they had never done before mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, 
so they can bounce off of each other a little bit and get some more of that live sound kind of captured. Because apparently, and I, I've only seen Metallica live in recent times, but you know, if you had gone to those those shows in the '80s, that Metallica was even better live than they were even on record. And so, for whatever it's worth, I think Bob Rock and what he was trying to do was trying to sort of get that live sound back to Metallica after you know. Um, and I know we're going to talk about Injustice for All a little bit, but there is something very kind of clinical and um, I don't want to say sterile. Sterile is the wrong word, but but there's something very precise about Injustice for All that calculated all. Yeah, and it, and that's great. I, you know, we both love that record, but it's it lacks a certain warmth to it. And I think the Black Album has a lot of that bottom end kind of warmth. You know, it's kind of the potential of what a like a a pop producer could bring to it. just like yeah. what. What um, it's back in black from ACDC, you know. Oh, it's, uh, what the fuck is the guy's name? Um, Rick Rubin brought to Slayer. Yeah, for sure. That potential of what you could do to extreme music. Yeah, because like Hello Waits with uh, Bill Meteor from from Metal Blade doing that, it had like a son of a that cavernous, merciful fate. Um, the um, the chorus, the echo, yeah, reverb, a lot of reverb and stuff like that. That was like the the cheat that everybody used because they didn't know how to record mm-hmm. that stuff. It's like yeah. let's put some reverb on it. And again, like I love, I mean, Hello Eights in some ways is like a a it represents like the end of a certain Slayer narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, epic songs, long, you know, and things like that. And One like. Of the- Best opening tracks on a Slayer record. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, like at dawn they sleep. Like there's just there's a lot of things happening that I love about Hello Waits, and it's hard to like compare Hello Waits to Rain and Blood. To me, it's like almost like comparing Injustice for All the Black album. Like they're they're operating in like two kind of completely different orbits in a way. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so I don't know if we want to call this episode. You know, the, I, I kind of reached out to the patron fans and and kind of asked what what sort of stuff they were interested in. Um. You know, contrarian episodes seem to be something kind of interesting. We've we've done stuff like that before. We pit it to Deep Purple records against each other. We did that with a kind of Fear Factory, where I'm more the fan than you, and you're not so much. Yeah. We're both huge fans of Metallica. Um, we've talked about Metallica, especially when Hardwired came out, and we kind of did the Big Four episodes, mm-hmm. and we kind of ranked some things. And, and I still feel that was like a really honest uh representation of all that stuff like yeah. the way we broke it down for sure well it was very i felt i didn't feel like i was being pulled one way or another like emotionally at all yeah it was yeah. very like was, okay i think yeah I, slayer won in the point total like what do you do you but know? then megadeth won overall didn't they no slayer won overall Did they went overall yeah they won okay. just like they were i think they were a point ahead of uh, anthrax i think ended up fourth and megadeth was third metallica was second okay. and most people would just assume metallica would win because metallica has all the <laughs> the accoutrements that say they should win in terms of like mainstream appeal and, and what they've and, done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no one's going to argue that they're the biggest metal band of the 1980s. Um, no matter how much I would love to argue, it's like Iron Maiden because I probably, I feel more strongly about Maiden now because I have stayed with Maiden beyond the eighties. A yeah, little they bit. Didn't buck you off. And yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. they did with the blaze blaze era, but then they kind I of love brought the first back, one, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. X factor, I think is a great record. Yep. And that would be a fun, uh, maybe Patreon episode or contrarian yeah. episode to do down the road is the blaze Bailey era. But, um, but yeah, people kind of, I don't know where I was going with that thought. Oh, but I think like, you know, uh, Slayer, in terms of what we do and kind of how we set up that ranking system, I think Slayer just like eked it out a little bit because I think Slayer kind of, you know, um, you could make this as a critique or you could make this as a positive, but Slayer kind of stuck to the script a little bit more. Yeah. I was know? the most surprised that Megadeth ranked as high. 
because yeah. I haven't really cared about their output in so many years. Yeah, and you're that would be a great. Uh, I think that would be a kind of a fun patron episode we could do down the road too. Is uh, talking about non rest in peace Megadeth because I'm a huge fan of it, and you're pretty lukewarm on some of that stuff. Yeah, you know, uh, Killing and, and Peace Cells, especially. I think we could kind of talk about those records because yeah, you're. Like, I don't know. You've always struck me as not as much of a Megadeth fan, which is fine. Well, it, it was just like everything was, you know, this or that when I was a kid. Like, you couldn't be oh, yeah, multiple yeah. things. Right. Like, you, you, were, you were either Iron Maiden or Judas Priest. Uh, you were Megadeth or Metallica. And I was always in the Metallica, Metallica side. Yeah. And then Rust in Peace came out. I was like, fuck, this is good. But and I, I think by the time everything else. I got into all of it, Metallica's legacy was already, like, strange by then. Yeah. And it's funny because on some level, you could make an argument that once the Black Album kind of faded in like 92, maybe is when like, you know, really Metallica kind of, they're still on Headbangers and stuff, but like they're, they were kind of quieter than maybe they were in 90, 91, that Megadeth put out Countdown to Extinction in 92 and Euthanasia in 94. And they had more of a presence on MTV and on like hard rock radio in my era you know 92 is me entering middle school yeah. you know like do you know what i'm saying they so had like, a, a weird mainstream success they they, that they never had before yeah it was really strange whereas metallica had achieved so much in the 80s into the early 90s uh that you know megadeth in a way was such a hot fucking mess because of the drugs and just the in and out of different like resentment <laughs> the revolving door of guitar players and yeah. drummers and just that like once they got nick menza and marty friedman and dave cleaned up a little bit like all of a sudden dave was on mtv doing like rock the vote shit in 92 and mm -hmm. like he was playing the national anthem before like the um you probably don't remember this because you didn't grow up with cable like like i did but they used to do like uh celebrity softball games on mtv and it would be like <laughs> and like dave Mustaine played come the, from that yeah he played the national anthem like Jimi hendrix style to yeah. start off that like there was like dave, dave mustaine suddenly like was like warm and fuzzy for like a little while and like megadeth you know, sweating bullets was on like oh yeah trl all the time it was like the requested video and blah. it was just a weird it was like a weird moment there for a couple of years where megadeth seemed kind of normal and stuff and I don't know. Um, and that was a point where I think I was spending a lot more time with Metallica going back and listening to like Ride mm -hmm. and stuff that I had missed, obviously, because of my age and, and things like that. But um, so I guess, that, you know, when we frame this, uh, we open with Orion for Master of Puppets. And um, what we kind of decided to do is like to not really contrarian, because I don't think Mark and I are, are going to like sit here and argue the the lack of worth of any of the like first four and really even five Metallica records. Cause I think we both have come to peace with the black album that it's a really great record. You know, yeah. it's just, it's really well done. It's the good songwriting is crisp, regardless of how many times you may or may not have heard those songs to the point of at, you know, nausea where you just don't care about like I side can too, man. I, I still like side two a lot. Yeah. Side two is great. Cause it didn't get overplayed as much. Yeah. I, you know, I can remove myself like, and it's hard to do. But I can do it because I think teaching the rock and roll history class, I have to do this sometimes with songs that like I don't ever need to hear again for the rest of my life. But I can look at Enter Sandman and I can look at it through the eyes of like a 10 or 11 year old, which is what I was when I heard it. And I can say mm -hmm. that's a fucking amazing song for like yeah. a 10 and 11 year old. Tells it's, a story. It's perfectly it's kept. Yeah. It's sonic. It's It's got everything. You know, to me, that song is 
and I, maybe I equate these two things together. It's the Terminator 2 of like metal songs. Terminator 2 is not necessarily better than Terminator 1. Terminator 1 has like a certain quality of, of original ideas to it that's great. And nudity. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Lind- <laughs> Linda Hamilton. But um but Terminator 2 is like this pop music. It's this pop. Yeah. Like I it- saw that movie 6 times in the theater. Six times we went. Like we rode our bikes because it was the perfect movie for like a seventh grader. And it was, it, it was the sequel that nobody knew they wanted. Exactly. And yeah. it and it was not rated R. So like, I, or maybe oh, it was. It was. Was it? Yeah, it might have been. But it didn't feel like an R movie. It felt like big. It felt mainstream. You had the Guns and Roses soundtrack on MTV all the time. Like, might have been PG thirteen. It might have been too. I can't remember. We'll have to look. Because the violence isn't. Over the top, yeah, and I like, like all the really gory. Arnold's scenes. nude, but like you see his butt, but that's about it. You can see a butt after, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I think that's falls in that, but I think the um, most of the gory scenes, like the when they go into the garage and he gets kind of fixed up, yeah. The yeah, really explicit be. scenes are taken out. It might be PG. That. It might have been like the perfect kind of like middle ground. It's kind the of first movie. movie that ruined horror and action movies by making them PG-13. Oh, yeah. There you go. There you go. We had the 80s of, you know, Commando and yeah. Total Recall and all these, like, great, you know... Hard R movies. Yeah. RoboCop. Yeah, all that And kind of I stuff. saw all those as a child. Yeah. I saw RoboCop when I was 12 years old. I wanted to see RoboCop. <laughs> I was, on, I was only eight, so, like, it was tough because I couldn't convince anybody. Like, my mom didn't like those movies, so yeah. I had to kind of, like... Either my dad would show me stuff when I go and stay with my dad. That's where I saw Commando and Pet Cemetery, and just yeah. my mom hated horror movies. She liked action movies, so we would like, but she didn't really like uh, over the top gory action movies. So like, she was more like, okay, I can stomach Die Hard. Yeah, you know, like Die Hard seems like a, and I get it because Die Hard's kind of like a perfect action movie. It's got like something for everyone. You know, mm-hmm. it's like warm and fuzzy. It's not like like Predator is probably a step too far for my mom sure. on some level. It's a yeah. little like. It's a little grim, you know, it's like really gory. Yeah. Real gory. Yeah. It's very, it's very much a dude movie. You know, there's not like a, it's just full of testosterone. Yeah, it's, as yeah. soon as they grab both arms and they're like shaking each other's arms, and their biceps yeah. are ready to pop. You know, it's... I don't think that, I don't know if that appealed to my mom necessarily, you know, but, uh, but I think like, you know, Metallica black album kind of falls into that. Like it's like a, the perfect thing to sort of discover at a certain age. And, and, you know, and that time it was, I still get warm, fuzzy feelings about, you know, some of that stuff. I mean, you couldn't not see the videos for unforgiven was constant. You know, nothing else matters was constant, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I remember a certain sense of pride too, of like the the band you followed at at that time seemed like so many years, mm -hmm. which is probably two years. Yeah. Yeah. But But as a kid, that's a, a fucking eternity. And they're like, they were being getting a little bit of mainstream success. So you'd, you know, you get in the car with somebody and they'd play whatever. I can't think of what else was going on at the time. Um, but then, like, Enter Sandman came out. I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's not bad. Yeah. And then you get a little bit of the resentment because, well, I followed them through this tough period. I mean, that's just the yep. the way a lot of this stuff goes for it's, success. It's a complicated and, legacy. Yeah. You know? So basically what Mark and I did is we picked out kind of uh, our tentpole records that, like, from a, either a nostalgia or maybe a non-intellectual an emotional level, an emotional gut level, emotional. A gut sort of level, and uh, you know, it was tough for me because um, it's not the Black Album as much as you know we're kind of talking about the Black Album, just to kind of frame the conversation. But it was a, kind of a toss up for me between you know Ride the Lightning, uh, which intellectually I think I know is the better pure thrash record. Yeah, uh, I think it's, 
I think didn't Decibel, I think when they ranked their thrash records, I think they had it like number one or number two. It was like right there with Rain and Blood, you know, like, yeah, it's something like it's it's, uh, you know, it it just it works. It's sonic. It's fat. I mean, fight fire with fire is like I think I told Mark this. I think I think it predates. I don't know the exact release dates, but I think it beat Haunting the Chapel uh, as a release. Uh, because Show No Mercy was still very much kind of in the Judas Priest kind of mold. It wasn't like yeah. super fast yet. I mean, it had some, you know, Black Magic. It had some songs that were like, you know, going for the gusto, but. It was kind of more in the new album. For sure. Than Thrash. You know, and so. Kill Em All. So Kill Em All really, in a way, was like the fiercest thing that kind of had come out of like Thrash on, on. I'm sure there's some like weird underground Thrash record that I, I'm forgetting, but for the most part, like Kill Em All set the bar. And ride the lightning up the bar in a way because it added some technical proficiency, better production, all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. And then you could make an argument that like when Haunting the Chapel came out and you heard like capture uh capture of sin, uh capture of sin, sorry, that was like, whoa, because Lombardo suddenly upped his game. And when Lombardo started to push through, it sort of sets the scene for like the Exodus and the Dark Angels and this this whole other like this yeah. other form of thrash. So in a way, like Metallica, you could make an argument like peaked out with traditional thrash at Ride the Lightning. By the time you get to Master of Puppets, which is the album I, I eventually settled on. Yeah. Like, I think Master of Puppets, like, is, you know, it's always considered like the one of the best thrash albums of all time. But I think it goes beyond thrash. I think that was the record in a lot of ways that made Metallica digestible to a certain mainstream audience not completely because again no videos yet no radio releases but like that that iron maiden you know kind of crowd the, the hardcore like heavy metal it's crowd. like the number of the beasts or the power slave yeah. of metallica in a way this is the era when they had they were doing like iron maiden style stage shows yeah and they're yeah. just i remember like seeing pictures of the master like master puppet stage you know, with all the the different like headstones and shit, I was like, God, that would have been so fucking cool to see. Sure, back in the day, or the Lady Justice from mm-hmm. you know Justice for All. But and I can count. And here's here's kind of a I guess a, a story. Um, I, I can. There are three moments that I really think of where, and this is something like younger people aren't going to really appreciate, especially if you've grown up with a lot of YouTube. But you might remember sitting with your stereo with a blank cassette record play pause just yeah. waiting oh yeah for the radio yeah. for something yeah. for you you knew there was something and i there are three songs and i think these three songs like have stood the test of time from a historical standpoint there are three songs i remember hearing on i don't know if it was z93 or whatever you know rock show metal show that was kind of on that stunned me like stunned me and i remember kind of a, a chemical sort of change happening in my brain the first two are pretty predictable from like a classic rock standpoint. The first time I like conceived of and, and processed Stairway to Heaven, like I just, it was like I, I was kind of paused, like, like, like kind of actually able to find, kind of follow like the transitions of that song and the solo and the build. And like, mm-hmm. it was just very emotional to me. I was yeah. like, whoa, okay. And I, at the time I didn't realize that that song was so overplayed, you know, because it was like the first time I heard it. So yeah. like, you know. It's sort of like uh, Plato's like allegory of the cave. Like you only like know what you know because you only know what you know. Like you, yeah. you're you're only what this is the sort of spectrum of your perception. And so for me, the first time I heard Stairway to Heaven, it was like the greatest song in the world. If I had like gone to somebody ten years or five years older and me been like, "Have you heard Stairway to Heaven?" They would have just been like, 
get the fuck away from me. Like, of course I've heard Stairway to Heaven. What the fuck do I yeah. care? You know? But like the first time I heard it and really like it was a big moment. All along the Watchtower from Jimi Hendrix was another one where like I you know, it felt really important. There's just like something about that song, like it kind of overwhelmed me. Feel the weight of it. Yeah. It's just like heavy. And like still to this day in my rock history class. Kids will ask me, like, what is your favorite rock and roll song? And it's all on the Watchtower because it's Dylan writing the lyrics and Hendrix playing them. It's like this perfect merger of these two, like, forces of, like, rock history. It's not Mm -hmm. my favorite song, but it's like, if I had to pick the quintessential song that represents, like, all eras of rock and roll, like, that song kind of has it all. And then it was Master of Puppets. And the first, I, I had already heard Enter Sandman, and I had heard all that stuff. And I had probably seen, I think I have memory of seeing the video for one but when I saw the video for one, I think I was ten, and okay. I, I was a little, it was, I was a little eerie. Like, yeah, I was trying I to like. I don't I was, think you really grasped. I was trying what, to process yeah. what was sort of happening. I, I don't think I knew a lot about World Wars at that point. Yeah, you know, I probably knew about World War Two a little bit just from pop culture or whatever. But, I did um, recognize Jason Robards in that. From did something you? Else. Okay, yes. yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, I did not. Um, I think everything in black and white at that stage scared me. Um, I have some real distinct memories of. Um, accidentally when i was like five or six um usa network used to play alfred hitchcock presents Mm -hmm. when i was younger and i accidentally was like uh, you know up because my mom you know tv was my babysitter my mom was single mom working lots of jobs so sometimes i just kind of got left alone and i watched some like alfred hitchcock presents and it was in black and white and it really like something about it like creeped me out a lot Mm -hmm. and this is funny to the point where it created some kind of like psychosomatic thing in me so that when Don Henley's boys of summer video came out and it was in black and white, I hated it. And it scared me. Like I was like, (laughs) I thought it was like an Alfred Hitchcock thing. So it was like real eerie. So anyways, when Metallica one came out, like I was like, Whoa, these guys are serious. You know, I hadn't really heard. Yeah. I was used to rap videos, Motley Crue, Poison, like Metallica seemed like where the fuck did these guys come from? You yeah, know, like I that was, was a bucket to, of water in everybody's head. Yeah, from, it was yeah. real strange. So, so I liked one probably instinctively, but I hadn't spent a lot of time with it. But to me, when I heard Master of Puppets and I heard symphonic movements like in it, you know, yeah. you heard the speed at the beginning, then like after the second chorus, it like slows down and goes into that, ding, 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 you know, this acoustic yeah. thing and then it builds and builds. It was like, my introduction almost to like symphonic classical music, but I didn't know Some where they were modern like, Wagner. It's, yeah. It was like yeah, super yeah. like weird and emotional and all these just movements and stuff like that. And that song, like when I heard it on the radio, I guess I, that's when like everything I had been reading about because Metallica came up in a lot of things um, in hit parader, they got sort of side mention, but like they didn't look like Poison or Bon Jovi or any of those bands. So I just yeah. like dismissed it. I didn't really know what Metallica was. When I was in elementary school, um, there was a kid that had uh, a Metallica shirt. And it was the time where like MTV was banned in my house for like six months because of Twisted Sister. And I was going to church for the only time in my life. And so I was a little brainwashed. They had tried to get me to get rid of like my Motley Crue tapes and stuff. So I went up to this kid that was wearing a, I was in third grade and I said, Metallica worships the devil. Shouldn't be wearing that shirt. And like, now I just laugh about it, whatever. But so like my perceptions of Metallica were really, really weird. But when I heard Master of Puppets, it like was the missing puzzle piece for me because it's the, I mean, if we're being honest, it's the best execution of all the ideas Metallica really ever had in one record. It's not the most prog. 
that's going to come when when you you know you're going to talk about injustice for all a little bit and your perception on it. It's not the most thrash in a way. It's like ride the lightning. It's not the most cult in a way that's kill them all. It's not the poppiest or like the best kind of like punchy enter Sandman-y kind of stuff that's going to come with the Black Album. But it's all of those things at this tipping point right in the middle of the eighties, and I think that's why. You know, I, you know, historians sort of feel pretty strongly about it that mm-hmm. it, it or Rain and Blood is kind of the ultimate thrash record. I think Rain and Blood's the ultimate thrash record if you're staying in the thrash lane. Yeah. I think what Metallica, I think Metallica Master of Puppets is this, you know, you could look at like, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, Iron Maiden before. Like, you could mention, there's, there's a certain aspect about like the first album in Killers. You know, we did that Paul mm-hmm. Diano record. Where you could make an argument that there are some people that probably feel strongly that those are the truest, most Iron Maiden records or something like that. There's some energy about them. I see those kind of like kill them all, maybe even ride the lightning a little bit, you know, yeah. by the time you get to killers. But like in a way, what Bruce and, and what the, the songwriting in all the like longer songs and epic sort of things that start to come together, you know, with Hollow Be I Name and then with Power Slave, with Rhyme of the Ancient Man, like all that stuff is really like what to me Master of Puppets kind of is. It's all that stuff all happening together. It's it's like it's got all the epic stuff going on. Does it have the most epic stuff? I don't know. Um, does it have the 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 most complicated riffs? No, probably not. That's probably injustice. You know, mm-hmm. uh, is it the fastest? I don't think anything is as fast as Fight Fire with Fire. Yeah, but you know, Battery and Damage Incorporated give a pretty good run for its money. You know, so I think it's it's like. If I had to desert island of Metallica, for me, it's probably Master of Puppets because I get everything I ever wanted out of it in and like one sitting in a weird. It's way. also the end of a an era. It's yeah, and I you know the reason we open with with Orion is I think you know the thing that for me is always going to be the anchor for Metallica. Maybe is is probably Cliff in some level. Like I love I I love Hammett. I think Hatfield may be the greatest rhythm lead thrash guy like of all time you know that kind of combo um his harmonies know, are unbelievable just yeah, yeah just he just nails it like he has paul muting like all of it's just like he's he's perfect at what that's supposed to be you know um i mean i think scotty ian's a pretty amazing rhythm guy too you know um anthrax was never really known for their like leads the way like other thrash yeah. bands were but i think the appeal but Hetfield's of, also a writer too that's yeah and for sure and i think scotty is not He's uh, Charlie Benante is like the, oh, that's the major song. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. Tracks. He's he's kind of the guy there. Um, but there, it's interesting because Hetfield and Benante or Hetfield and Lars are kind of like a Benante Ian kind of thing. Like they yeah. they're, they're just always together. Yeah. They'll be like the, I think the, the two constants. The, yeah, the know? contrariness between the two is what makes what made good music for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I think you know Cliff Burton for me is like the the sort of X factor. Um, I think he was at his peak probably on Master of Puppets. I think he's the guy that sort of added warmth that like, you know, not just the bottom end, you know, that, that, you know, you expect out of like great bass playing, but I think he was the guy we talked about it in the, uh, the, the 82 episode, I believe when we were talking about kind of like early thrash and, and stuff like that. But Burton was the guy who was like more into, um, traditional, like, heavy metal and hard rock in the 70s i think he kept them anchored in a way with like hey you know we could do this like eight minute song and that's great but let's make sure like it has like some emotion like let's make sure like there's there's a hook 
you know, all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he kind of adds a little bit of that too, because he was the guy, he wasn't really coming from a Nawabum background or a punk background, like, like Lars and then James and some of those guys were, he was a little, I don't know if he was older necessarily, but he was like hanging out with like more like hippie bands. Um, you know, he wore bell bottoms. Like he he, definitely stood out. I mean, he was, he was kind of outside of Steve Harris. He's the only bass player ever knew who they were. And he's the only bass player that made a difference in a band like that. Like as far as like heavy metal, extreme stuff, like n- nobody knows who Ian Hill was until you could read the back of the, yeah, you know. And and God bless him. I love Tom. But outside of like a few moments on like Hello Waits, like Tom's pretty well buried. You know, I mean, yeah. Lombardo is the rhythm section of that band yeah. because yeah. he's so spectacular. Um, you know, and I didn't know who Steve DiGiorgio or, or any of those guys were yet, you know, no. but... um but yeah, I don't know. So you but the, know, the mythic kind of status was added to him too because he was cut short. He died young after they yeah. put out a record that was you know hailed as you know the I, best thing ever. Yeah, and they're I, writing this high, and then you just get kicked right in the dick. Yeah, it's uh, it it is, <laughs> and and I think you know you hear him do the the solo in, in Orion there along with Hetfield and Hammett and stuff like that, and I think they're just um, it's it's always been curious. It's it's you know a great what if you know what would Metallica have done after Master of Puppets if Cliff had stayed around? Like I don't know, you know, like I don't. You're gonna kind of talk a little bit about Injustice for All, and that's obviously um a very contrarian, controversial record to a lot of people. Be depending on what your feelings on bass playing are, or like you know catharsis or whatever, whatever you want to pull out of that record. Or um, but you know Master of Puppets to me. Master of Puppets almost predicts the Black Album more than Injustice for All does to me, because yeah, there's it's more direct. Yeah. There's there's hooks. There's there's a more traditional songwriting in some of the stuff that they're doing. It's obviously still very sonic. It's still very thrash. But you know you can hear some stuff in like Welcome Home Sanitarium or um, you know even like Battery or you know there's just there's even really Master of Puppets. Master of Puppets is is a pretty conventional like hooky song is like raw and like eight minutes long like there, there's not a lot you know yeah um, more so than one i mean one to me is a more impenetrable song and it's interesting that one becomes like the first like mtv metallica you know yeah if, if metallica had maybe ponied up uh i think they always took pride in the fact that they got popular by not doing music videos you know that they were like this underground band that had kind of was like outselling like mtv bands you know like yeah. that's 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 a point of pride i get that and when they finally you know decide to start making music videos and stuff like that um you know I, I don't think they made bad ones i think they actually were pretty interesting music videos yeah even black album ones are yeah were quite I, good. I think unforgiven is a pretty fucking weird video for like yeah. a bunch of like middle school kids to be like trying to make sense <laughs> of you know like i don't know maybe maybe nothing else matters a little warm and fuzzy for some people but fuck it like whatever like you don't yeah, they have nothing to prove at that point, you know. Sure, like, absolutely. you know, no one's going to question their their hardness or whatever. Um, I just think they're interesting. I think they did whatever they wanted to do uh, when they wanted to do it, and I don't fault them for that. It doesn't mean I'm going to go along on the ride the whole time. Yeah, yeah, I got off quite a few times, but you know, there's always that anticipation of, man, if they could just get just a little bit of it. I know, you know, hardwired we got a little bit. Yep. Yeah, you taste it a little bit, spit out the bone. I think especially. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. lyrically was stupid, but musically was, I felt a little, like, I was, like, excited a little bit. Yeah. And there's a little bit of harmony coming back that, mm-hmm. you know, Hetfield's known for, for writing those two-part harmonies. The very new album, but his were always just so fucking sad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm i with you. I, or powerful, but, you know, it's it like classical music. It was powerful sh- and 
emotive and well and i think you know bringing up the classical music thing i think there's there's some kind of classical music sort of structure especially to you know orion uh call of cthulhu mm-hmm. um I can't think of a lot of other bands. I mean, it's, uh, I think Iron Maiden's the only band I can think of in this era that was kind of mainstream popular that was doing instrumentals. Yeah, and that wasn't relying on any type of yeah. um, like radio play. I don't think Metallica was really on the radio much until... Well, I think Master of Puppets Master? got on the radio. I don't okay. think it was released as a single. Um, maybe it was. I, I might be wrong on that, but I don't think... I can't remember, but... I think it kind of, I think, again, going back to the story I told before, you know, the famous story about Stairway to Heaven is that it was never released. You know, like it, that, that, the sheer will of radio DJs and people that had a better sense than music companies did is what got that song on the radio to the point where it's the most requested song ever in the history of FM radio. That's crazy. You know, so like they released other songs from Led Zeppelin 4, and I think Metallica is sort of the same. I think, you know, if you were, Hosting like rock shows, you know, and you were supposed to in 1986, you were supposed to play, I don't know, um, Living on a Prayer from Bon Jovi. And you were supposed to play Judas Priest Turbo and maybe maybe Iron Maiden released Wasted Years from somewhere in time. I, I mm-hmm. think they did, you know, or um, but I don't think Metallica told radio what to play and what they didn't have a single. And I think it no. was up to radio DJs to sort of like say this song's fucking awesome. Like, we're just going to play. It's eight minutes long, but we're just going to play it. You know, Stairway to Heaven is, you know, it's eight minutes long or whatever, too. So they're not conventional songs that you you kind of put on. And I think I think Master of Puppets is just this fascinating... It's it's the it's the biggest... I um, Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's the biggest the metal underground will ever get. Because I don't think... You know, Black Sabbath was putting songs out on the radio right from the get-go. Sure. Priest, Priest, uh, I don't think... Mm, I never really say that priests were underground. Yeah, I don't know what they were. I, maybe on Sad Wings. is very different. Yeah, maybe, maybe on Sad Wings. I'm not sure. Sure, but um, that didn't really get a whole lot of... They didn't really get radio No, but they're, they, I was going to say they're not what... Meta- you know, I think Metallica, and I think the reason people are so... And maybe this gets to the point... Oh, correct me if I'm wrong... Um, Maybe the emotional attachment to Metallica that people had, the betrayed feelings, the the butthurt stuff that happens with the Black Album and Load and Reload, is that for a certain generation, and I'm not part of that generation, so I, I, I can't speak to this. I'm just talking intellectually. But in some capacity, that within the realm of heavy metal, Metallica was the biggest the underground ever felt before it exploded into the mainstream. And Master of Puppets is the very peak of that because there were no MTV videos. They were just doing it off sheer willpower, sheer touring, live shows, the you attitude, know, reputation, all of it. And I mean, you could you 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 could make an argument that like what um, I don't know in our era, maybe our era, sort of post like mid nineties. Who's who's even touched you know Opeth, Macedon, you know who are the bands that like were were like they were like balloons being filled with air that hadn't yet popped and they were getting like real close but were they touching I mean master like none of no, them were fucking no. anywhere close to what master of puppets was doing you know no so that's what I mean I think maybe there's that emotional attachment of betrayal because they felt so personal to the largest block of underground metal fans that's ever happened in the history of heavy metal without sort of selling out anything and then I think 
They, it got, yeah, I got popular in, in spite in, of what spite it was. In spite of everything <laughs> else. Yeah, it, it did exactly what it wanted to do. It was uncompromising. And I think even though you know they put out the one video a couple years later with Anjustice, I still think you, you felt Metallica fans weren't betrayed by that because it was very ominous and dark and um yeah still an impenetrable record it's not yeah. that's not a record that's catering to radio it's or a, mtv was it a 68 minute record yeah and i mean the shortest songs like dyer's eve at like six minutes or something like yeah. that you know i mean it, i think it had three at least three songs that were oh, eight minutes or longer yeah and then like a couple that were like six and a half seven you know i mean like blackened i believe is like seven uh injustice for all the title track is eight to live as his eyes like eight um harvest of sorrows like six and a half maybe uh eye of the beholder like what six and a half the one the non-edited version of one is over seven you know so like none of those songs are catering to like what was the trend in 1988 you know the trend in 1988 for like mainstream metal is nothing but a good time I mean, it is. That's that's a that's a quintessential 1988 song. Yeah, you know, Bad Medicine from Bon Jovi, quintessential 1988 song for mainstream MTV. And here comes Metallica one. Now again, I wasn't watching Headbangers Ball in that era. I didn't start no. watching really Headbangers Ball till like '91. So I saw it at a friend's house, and it was uh... what was being played on Headbangers Ball. Was there a lot of underground thrash videos beyond? one i mean i think what exodus maybe made a couple videos maybe but even slayer didn't really, really make a video until seasons of the abyss until probably 90 91 yeah that's when i remember it i remember, I remember it existed one on just like regular regular MTV. for sure yeah it was for sure there and I that mean, was just like wow i don't know i don't think that was the first instance i heard the album but it's the first instance to where i was paying more attention to the lyrics and how fucking that's the most like uh, serious, I think I've ever seen the entire band. Oh, it's frowns, <laughs> frowns, and just like how every, you could just feel how heavy, not just the music, but like what they were talking about was. And yeah, you couldn't necessarily tell the like just on the surface. I didn't. I don't think I even knew that you know Cliff was dead or anything. yeah. Like, I didn't know, know any of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It wasn't you know you'd have to read about that stuff. It wasn't just like a modern like a thing you'd. Yeah, I mean, I was hear about eight, on the TV I was eight when Cliff died, so like it yeah. was way off any radar screen. You know? So I wasn't even really paying attention to like the lineup or like I didn't know people's names or any of that kind of stuff until probably like I don't know. So I started picking up the albums and reading, you know, reading stuff because I was just I was getting copies of stuff from people yeah. and you know hearing stuff here and there. But so this is this is the record you chose is Injustice for All, yeah. kind of where we're kind of getting at. Um, what what does it for you? It's probably the, it was the first heavy metal record that when I heard it, you, it's the first, like, I don't know if everybody has, has this instance, but where you physically feel it, like mm -hmm. I had an emotional, physical reaction hearing the record. Sure. And I, it felt important. It felt like the lyrics, just the song titles were ominous, but they felt like there's really something, they had something to say. It wasn't just about like, you know, talking about Satan or like what was surrounding everything else at, on at the time was just like excess and parties and girls. Yeah. And like, this seemed like way more of a bigger deal. You and I mean, how many people weight of it, you know, like outside of like hardcore Metallica fans, I don't know how many people just kind of stumbling on say like master of puppets knew that it was about cocaine. Yeah. You know I mean, like, yeah. I just think they thought it was like, 
you know, but they're able, something they were able dark, to use metaphor. Like, yeah, which at the time for me, I didn't really understand what that. Oh was. yeah, yeah. Like yeah. That, those are these are all like concepts that made me think about stuff, made me look up like what certain types of words meant and all this type of stuff. You know, like what what is a dire's eve? Yeah, I don't know. Or Ask my mom. <laughs> Blacken talking about the planet dying and the environment. Yeah, and, you know, and Justice for All kind of talking about you know the failure of like the the court systems and yeah, prisons like the and, the like know. the imagery on the covers, especially for for Master of Puppets. And for injustice are just like, there's these social statements too. They're not beat. Well, that one's a little more beating you over the head with it. Yeah. But Lady Liberty. Yeah. But for, like for a teenager. raped. For a teenager, that's a big deal. Yeah. And it, it, something that makes you stand up and think about something you normally would think is boring. Oh, yeah. Or like, no, that's, I don't care about what's on the news. It's like, no, this made me more, I you know, kind of like cognizant of what was happening in the hey greater man, world. Dave Mustaine said it best. This is the news. <laughs> On peace cells. But you're right. I think, you know, like sociopolitical conscious thrash is a gateway to how I got to where I am now, where I'm yeah. teaching history and teaching about global studies. And I'm intimately, intimately sort of interested in why things happened and, uh, you know, why we're fucked the way we are fucked and social problems and political. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could draw a line from injustice for all to you know, Sepultura KSAD and you're like, all of a sudden you're seeing the video for like territory and you're like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, like, and you're seeing like third world, like Palestine, like Israel, like wars. And you're just kind of like, oh, this is different. You know, like Sepultura was the first band that made me think about conflicts in a foreign country. That's what like, I mean. They lived under a dictatorship. Really? Yeah. That's what happened. Now? It's yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. It made me like that heavy metal in general blanket term is the only kind of music that's ever made outside of awareness things being brought up by through like you know gangster rap in the 90s sure. or something yeah, yeah that's the only type of music that's made me i've investigated more things based on what's that word mean what's this turn of phrase mean yeah like it made me interested in the occult it made me interested in all kinds of it just made me like everything was a raw nerve for i want more yep yeah plus. and that's what this this record summed up every it justified every single bit of it too yeah yeah i could see that it was like you know skateboarder crowd was into it like it seemed like across the board, everybody was like on board. Like they got it, they felt the importance of it. And did uh, the skateboard crowd that maybe is coming more out of a I don't know punk or crossover background, and maybe maybe not so much in Mount Pleasant, but um, do you think they they weren't turned off by the fact that it was so kind of technical and progressive in a way? Did you hear any kind of no, feedback th- or anything? no? I mean, I, we didn't even talk about stuff like that either. But yeah. just like seeing people in like Thrasher or Transworld, like people were wearing pus head Metallica shirts. And I think the fact that it was so blatantly political on the cover yeah, that pulled That's punk kids punk in too. Yeah. And pus yeah. head, you know, punk yeah. right there. So it's, yeah. I think it was one of those kind of things where it all, everything kind of came together though. Not until later did, you know, you understand the whole like emotional, not the band didn't even understand it at the time. Yeah. It just kind of seeped out the emotional turmoil they were going through. They couldn't, um, this was like the alcoholica, era metallica the 599 ep yeah era and stuff too so it's it's young guys dealing with really heavy shit the only way they knew how was through like music i can't remember is uh newstead's is he on 598 yeah okay yeah. that's his first first appearance because that was 87 i think they put that out in between masters and before yeah, he's on justice the, he's on the cover he's on it. it okay i can't i can remember i couldn't remember if cliff had contributed anything to that before they did the the international tour because he Cliff, could have been i'm not sure but as far as the covers concerned okay. he's i think you're right though i think i'm 
that's a record I don't think about as much as like I don't investigate it. You know, yeah. what I, mean? I don't even know if I own a physical copy of it on CD. I had it on cassette tape. Okay, but I don't know if I ever bought it on CD. I got Garage Inc. They had that, and then all the new shit. Yeah, too. But. Yeah, I should, that's like something I should just pick up. It's probably something I've seen used. It's been reissued a couple times just recently never, too. I'm like, oh, I know all those songs, but I just yeah. you know forget. That's how like, I learned about the Misfits. Yeah, you know, for sure. Certainly learned about Diamond Head. Like there was so much of a learning like, joke. Yeah. They were a band that was completely happy to, or completely willing to like show reverence to bands that like gave yeah. them inspiration. Yeah. That wasn't really anything I really understood at that point. No bands really talking about influences outside of, God, I don't remember anybody talking about influences. I remember like, this is a stupid story, but I remember like it was weird when... I can't even believe I'm bringing this up. Because, <laughs> again, I was like 10 years old, so I'm trying to process my brain as a 10-year-old. And 10-year-olds are not very smart. I don't know if you've ever been around a 10-year-old. But they are, they are thinking about things, at least. They're, they're trying to they're think about curious. things. They're very curious. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. trying. And I was self-proclaimed, as I, I've, I've told the story before, uh, You know, right out the gate, like I think Poison was my first like favorite band. And when their second record came out in 88, uh, they released a song called um you know your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll and i remember like mtv like you know talking about or somebody on the radio and saying it was a cover song and it was like the first time i thought about the fact that like what do you mean a cover song like i didn't i guess i just didn't know that you did other people's songs before i never heard that term i like i remember hearing um the term like with uh orbison like he was doing like an old standard Got which it. is basically a cover song as yeah. well. <laughs> Most fifties songs were old. I mean, Elvis yeah. didn't write any of his own songs. You know, yeah. Little Richard was having songs written for him. Really, Chuck Berry of that era was the only one like writing exclusively all his own songs and, yeah. and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it was weird. I think you know, then like Tesla did Signs, and like I just remember like, oh, this is an old song from the set. And then I think I learned that Smoke in the Boys' Room was like not a Motley Crue song. And I just remember being like, what's happening? My, you know, that was kind of a thing. Yeah. They started to be pick on, and like pretty woman from Ben Halen. Yeah. And, yeah. But I think pretty woman had, like, I was aware of that song, but I was so young when diver down came out that I didn't, I yeah. don't know. I didn't know the history of it. And then I think I remember hearing the Roy Orbison song and just kind of being like, okay, this is all starting to make sense. You know? Um, I knew that because that was like one of the few bands my dad enjoyed. was into Roy Orbison, yeah, right? We, yeah, we yeah. here in the house. So. Yeah. So, and I'm sure somebody told me something. Like, I'm sure driving around listening to music, my mom probably was like, on the oldie station This is something. like, oh, this song you're liking, this is like somebody else's song. And being yeah. like, oh, okay. But, uh, you know, in, going back to Injustice, this is a conversation we were having, like, when we were kind of talking about how we wanted to do this patron show. Like, it's funny, like, it's almost like counter to, like, our personalities that you like the prog metal Metallica, <laughs> you know, versus, like, you know, most people probably expect you to, like, kill them all or sure. ride more. Um, and me, maybe, because I, I tend to kind of lean a little bit more into some of the technically kind of stuff. Not as much maybe as Chris does, but um, a little bit in that category that... I don't know. So what what is it about that, like from a sound standpoint, that that still like kind of drags you? Is it purely nostalgia, or is there still like? Oh no, the um, I mean the this when did that thing come out? Probably in like two three months ago. That like the ultimate box uh-huh. of yeah. Injustice for All came out. They had I don't know fucking ten records and all this live stuff and everything was remastered. And I I hadn't listened to it in probably I don't know three or four years. And I went back and just listened to the whole album front to back. And then I went and listened to it again, and I listened to Dyer's Eve like three times. Yeah. 
and just that um I can't think of anything since that's done guitar harmonies like that that affected me so much. Yeah. Like I can I can still feel like that that feeling like of it felt like powerful but also like everything you cared about just died when you hear those that twin, you know, the the harmony part of and toward what is that like the 5 minute mark or something in Dyer's Eve. Yeah. Right after the solo and it starts to come out. Yep, yep. But like to feel the emotion, like viscerally emotional stuff about music, it's like I don't feel that very often at all mm-hmm. anymore. And that's that's something that to have that. I don't think it's just nostalgia pulling that back in. I think it's the 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 emotions that they they were kind of working through at that point still make it through the music. Yeah, I think, and I know there's a song we'll, we'll talk a little bit about you know before we kind of wrap things up. But you know, you mentioned Dyer's Eve and the the end of and Justice for All is really personal. You know, like in, in hindsight, you know, you get it's kind of front loaded with all these like kind of political themes and, and World War One and, you know, all the kind of stuff that, that they're working through on side A. And then you get to kind of side B and you're, you know, and I still think of it as side B because I listen to a cassette so much. And yeah, it was definitely a lawn mowing uh, <laughs> thing for me, you know, but like, you know, side B, you start to get into, you know, Freight Ends of Sanity. Um, you, you start kind of getting a little bit more kind of deep and personal and. Metallica had done that before. I mean, certainly Fade to Black and Welcome Home Sanitarium, I think, are dark mm-hmm. kind of songs about like kind of mental health and, you know, stuff like that. But then you get to To Live Is To Die, which is about Cliff, you know, and it's this, they're kind of working through some of that in a way. Um, and then you get to Dyer's Eve, which is about James's like childhood and like, was he um, was the religion that he was raised under. Um, it's a very weird oh, wow. form of uh, Christianity that. It's not, it wasn't a Christian science. It's not Christian something. science, but something along those where they reject a lot of uh, medicine and a lot of. Um, it's very strict. It's not Baptist, but it's 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 like weird offshoot. It's not Jehovah's Witness, is it? Um, I don't it? think so. That's where you to look that up. Celebrate birthdays and stuff. Yeah, see if you can figure that out. But I I think you know you get um, something that for as clinical and progressive and technical and um, all the things that you could maybe lob at the record as either you know critiques or positives depending on which side of the fence you're looking at it's fascinating that you you know it's christian a, scientist christian scientist okay yep. it is um you get this sort of impenetrableness about the record and yet at the end it's it's so deeply personal you know it's weird like it's um it's almost like a contradiction you know or paradox yeah. or something like that uh, because i feel like you know when i we talk about master of puppets the the, the record that i sort of picked you know battery's a nonsense song battery the funny story about that is like they wrote it because they had to fill like five minutes and they just like bashed out like this, this dumb fast thrash song. And it's awesome. It's great. Yeah. You know, master puppets, drugs, things that not, should not be is, you know, going back to HP Lovecraft, welcome Home sanitarium, you know, pretty, pretty self-explanatory. I think damage incorporated and disposable heroes are both like anti-war ish yeah. kind of songs. Um, not really sure what Orion if there's any the constellation, I think it big. just might be, yeah, just, you know, I, I love the song. It's probably one of my favorites from that. That's why we started with it. But yeah, I don't know if it hasn't, you know, call of Cthulhu is pretty apparently, yeah. you know, Lovecraft sort of thing. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's any like deeper kind of things kind of going on with Orion. Uh, why oh, they... the, the, uh, with injustice, it was like, it was justified anger too, which I don't think I'd ever heard. Like it's a really angry record. Like yeah. a lot of thrash and a lot of like just like the hair metal kind of stuff that was happening at the time was all about, you know, having a good time yep. and you know 
fraternizing with women or whatever. And at, you know, as a young toxic kid, waltz, and I, cotton I, I didn't, and, I didn't know what it was to party. Yeah. <laughs> but I knew what it was to feel angry mm-hmm. and then to be angry, but to also have a point to it was something was kind of like a new idea. Yeah. Like to have outrage for a reason. Sure. You know, and this, all that, all the, the subjects on the record kind of made it make a whole lot more sense to me. Yeah. And it's funny because that, that sort of outrage anger, I hadn't yet encountered Slayer, you know, and when you get to like, uh, first time, like you hear Araya scream on, on like, uh, Angel of Death, it almost like backs you up a little bit. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, there's legit, you know, it's that record's like right here the whole time. It's right up in front of your face. Um, and that, that is sort of interesting, like where, you know, along the listening habit where you first encounter these kind of things or whatever. Um, you know, I think Injustice for All like has this like weird detached kind of element to it because of the anger almost too, you know. But I think that's I when I go back to that record a lot and I love Injustice for All, um I was telling Mark it's it you know, I mentioned the headphone kind of thing, but I just I have distinct memories of like encountering to live is to die and like stopping in my tracks, like as I was mowing the lawn and like pondering stuff like it was just it, my mind wandered a lot during that record because yeah. the songs were so expansive and so long that there was like um there was like a, a space to sort of do that in you well, know to live is to die it was uh, we talked about this off mic but uh it was it said exactly what it needed to say without saying any words mm-hmm. it was all just purely instrumental yeah and, and you get a little uh, spoken word at the end but but pretty yeah. much like you could it's tell like that whole story whole thing. Yeah. yeah without you know, i mean that's, Which I think is powerful in that way in movies. If you can say, if you can express emotion without saying a word, it's all through visuals. Yeah, visual language. Yeah, or through 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 audio. It's it's so like I think that's why like it it resonated so much and like Metallica resonated so much in like South America, um, all across the world because the you could feel the energy in the music and that was like you felt everything came through without having yeah. to understand the language. Yeah, and that's no, powerful. Sure. That's a powerful thing. I think that's why, like, uh, there's some people that you know, get really attached to, like, silent cinema or something like that. Yeah. Or, like, it was such a hard transition to move out of s- that into sound. Into the talkies? The, into the talkies, yeah. Because, you know, there was something kind of uh, international about, like, Chaplin or, or Buster Keaton or some of those Universal, kind of guys. yeah, yeah. Because, you know, they were telling it through their acting and their actions and, and things like that. And I think that's why, like, I'm drawn to some, you know, not to get into kind of film stuff, but like, you know, for me, when people are like, oh, you know, what we talk about war movies in my history class when inevitably when we're talking about like World War II and that stuff sort of comes up because the kids are interested in it. And, you know, probably like you and I, that's how we learned about war probably for the first time was yeah. through like Hollywood and things like that. It's an easy way to investigate it without yeah, knowing what for you're For sure. Vietnam, you know, especially to... in our generation, yeah. was a lot of Vietnam movies in the 80s and stuff like that. That but, was the kind of the, the impetus for so many different like action movies was this sure. Vietnam yeah. War vet. That was just like, okay, we know that character type now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're kind of fucked in the head a little bit. Um, but like, like Thin Red Line is a really interesting one for me because um, in some ways it's the it's very, it, it also can be kind of detached because it's so, the the camera is just sort of allowing things to happen. It's it's the, it, in some ways it's like the antithesis to like Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. Spielberg is very like interactive with his camera. You yeah. know, it's very, you know, like um, raw and that's cool. But I remember I was watching a John Ford documentary and John Ford was talking about how he never moved the camera because then it becomes another character. He says that the camera should stay 
and the people move in and out of the camera as they need to. And, mm-hmm. and the scene sort of unfolds and sort of happens. Um, I think Orson Welles did that sometimes too. Yeah. Like Orson Welles did tricks sometimes editing tricks more not to say John, John Ford is great at editing as well. But I think when I watch like thin red line and you're watching like nature kind of happen and you're watching like, all these different things happen. The camera is very still and it's sort of just allowing a lot of breath. And a lot of people probably find thin red line to be sort of pretentious or slow or whatever in the same way, like, you know, Tarkovsky with like stalker or something like that. Like, but to me, like Terrence Malick, when he's on his game is, is really natural in a way that like you see with like, you know, John Ford or something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, and, and I appreciate that. It's a different type of style. It's not, you know, a lot of action movies feel the need to be very, um, kinetic, (laughs) kinetic. Yeah. And I think there's something non kinetic about thin red line. And I think that, you know, probably if you're a soldier in the midst of war, some aspects of it feel kinetic, but I also think when you're a soldier in the midst of war, there's some aspects that feel incredibly sort of like long drawn out and kind of like naturalistic, you know, where like you're kind of waiting for something to happen. And I feel like that movie captures that sort of like silence of war as, as much as Saving Private Ryan captures the sort of like insanity of like that moment of war battle or something like that. So, um, but yeah, so like that as a visual language is really interesting to me, you know, and that's kind of what you're saying in a way sure. is like it, it, there's something, uh, peaceful sort of about that. And it's different, you know, it's like a different sort of way. And, uh, you know, as I teach this film class that I'm, I'm going to be kind of starting here in a few weeks, that's going to be the, the hardest thing for me is to figure out how do I teach them the language of film because they so much want you know, we were just talking about this before, like now plots are like over explained and everything like to this generation of kids, like everything is almost over explained and overdone. And yeah, so when you have it all spelled out, when you show them like Lynch or you show them something where like the camera is just letting them like, ha- <laughs> yeah, like there's an ambiguousness to it that like that I think makes them uncomfortable probably. And, th- and that's good, but it's like not a natural feeling. For there's them. a, there's a confrontation that you get with a cameraman that doesn't move. Yeah. Like everything now is on a gimbal and like you see like big superhero movies. I don't know where the hell the camera operator is. Yeah. It's just this big like pneumatic arm thing that's kind of doing its thing and sliding on shit. And, and then half of it's like digital effects and you know, like yeah. it's all being seamlessly interactive, which is cool. It's cool, but I don't know if it's just different. I, I appreciate yeah. film more. I think growing up in the seventies and eighties that uh, everything had to be done. There was always, it wasn't like that was done. There wasn't like that was just done on the computer. It's yeah. like everything was physically done. Star Wars was so interesting because guys made see that thing that went by. That was a guy made a model, yeah, out of five hundred old tank model kits and pieces. Sure. Yeah, there's together. something. The organicness of it is, yeah. is kind of cool for sure. There wasn't just like a, a blanket statement to say, "Well, this was done in post or this was you know yeah. created on a computer through digital software." Like that doesn't mean anything. Like for sure, no, a guy made this puppet, and that's why you know. Yeah, and this guy performed this puppet, and that's why it's so you know. That's why Frank Eyes was so great. Yeah, it's more like uh, it's more humanistic in a way. Yeah, like craftsmanship, and you're you're more aware of. Um, I was more aware of like camera movement because it didn't happen when it did happen. It was like for for a factor, sure. like you'd see it in like a De Palma movie, like a or a, or even with like Hitchcock and Vertigo, mm-hmm. they do that like that reverse where they're pulling out but panning in at the same time to get sure. that that kind of effect. And I mean, th- you know, one of the movies I'll, I, I usually show at the very beginning of my film class, just to sort of like uses like a standard bearer bearer for like a lot of film techniques is jaws. Yeah. And that's that zoom in scene on the beach is like right on Roy Schneider where like 
he it's like oh fuck that yeah. moment like it's happening you know like the attacks i don't, attacks know, I don't know of a uh a camera move sense that has like kind of like summed up an emotion so so good as is what Hitchcock did originally with that. I think he oh, might be the first to, for sure. yeah. to use that. But and Spielberg's definitely a, a student of cinema, yes. which is kind of why I use that as like it's easier to penetrate. Like yeah. people know Jaws, they know at like, least they're aware it's of color. It. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's yep. color in a way that's not uh exp- so expressive as you know vertigo is sure yeah vertigo is kind of a hard movie for a young kid to watch because it seems boring sure i might use it i would definitely use I it. i think i'm i think i'm going to because i want i think vertigo if you get it taught to you is a movie you probably appreciate more i mean if i gave them vertigo yeah. on their own they might be just kind of be like huh you know like rear window is easier for me as a kid to penetrate oh for sure but yeah. then but that kind of introduced you to a lot of these techniques as well and then all the anticipation and you know, build up and dread and yeah. editing. And then you see, you know, some of his later on stuff is like, okay. Yeah. Makes a whole lot of sense. I just picked up for my film class. The school actually bought it for me. Um, the DVD of the Truffaut Hitchcock interview. Oh, nice. Yeah. I need to see that. Um, and then the, I still haven't watched it. The psycho documentary, the 78, uh, where it's about the editing and psycho. It just came out that. last year. Okay, I don't think I've yeah, seen that. Yeah, it's all about like how radical the, that was. Okay, because like, the Psycho DVD that came out fuck years ago mm-hmm. has the big long like Joseph Stefano interviews and stuff. Yep. They ha- they go through all the editing and this one's like specific well. just about that. So we'll we'll have to check it out. I haven't watched it yet. So it's the most famously edited scene in it's movie the, history. Yeah, that and like uh, that montage and Battleship Potemkin, I think, are like the two most dissected, uh, like important yeah. ones. You know, um, I mean, De Palma did like an ode to the Potemkin one and Untouchables with the baby oh, yeah. carriage sequence and yeah. stuff like that. You know, I think my favorite montage of all time though, as much as I appreciate those others is the end of the first Godfather. That's, that's for me. Okay. The, the cuts to the baptism of the child to the, all the murders to like, it's yeah. just this, like it's incredibly Catholic. It's incredibly violent. It's incredibly like, it's just like, it's showing the sort of like hypocrisy of like that life and, Kind of yeah. like what Sopranos did, you know. Sopranos, yeah. in a way, confronted you with the fact that your 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 protagonist is like kind of like evil, <laughs> you know. And you're like, oh shit, like, Why do I like this, this is who I'm rooting for, kind of. You're like, yeah, you know, he's he's like murdering all these people. Why he's like trying to be a family man, you know. Well, and the funny thing, I think a lot of um, my wife watches this terrible show, and she'll admit it. The Good Doctor. Have you ever seen this? My mother likes The Good Doctor a the lot. Autistic surgeon. Yeah. It gives her like those kind of cathartic like. Just like I need to feel something. Speaking of speaking of Hitchcock, isn't that the kid that plays young? Uh, uh, yeah, he, he's in Bates Motel. Norm, Norman Bates. Yeah, but yeah. what it's Freddie like, Highmore it's High, reduced High the montage down to this formulaic like musical montage thing that Baywatch I think really kind of Grey's Anatomy I think ran corrupted ran that yeah in the two every episode yeah. there have everybody like panned by this like shitty you know Ed Sheeran song or something uh, that's yeah, playing and, at the and end. Everything kind of. Yeah, emotionally comes together. And, it kind yeah. of like neuters it when you see it that often. Yeah. When you then when you see it in like a classic movie, you're like, yeah, I know. So it's going to be a, you're fighting an uphill battle with teaching film it, techniques. It's to going kids. to be really interesting. I I'm I might make a lot of mistakes. This is the first year I'm ever teaching it, and I might have to uh, go back to the drawing board or punt a few times. You know, it's always knowing how much of the old stuff do I show because I want them to appreciate cinema. So there's like a there's kind of a tipping point. You know, like yeah. I think I show them maybe Chaplin and maybe a Buster Keaton one because I th- I've tended to find that they can kind of appreciate like the comedies because the comedies sure. kind of resonate. Yeah, you know I'm not going to spend a lot of time on silent cinema. I might show them Hugo, which is the Scorsese movie about 
uh, George Millet in like the early, yeah. so, you know, just as like a, a I get I sneak in a Scorsese movie, which you know, and B like it's kind of more of a, it's like kind of showing Singing in the Rain to teach like the transition of yeah talk to uh, or si- silent to talk, you know, like that's an easier way of like doing it than like lecturing on it sometimes. It's yeah, it's you tough know? to even show it's maybe a cheat, but of know. of that stuff because you think people are just gonna be like I know bored out of their minds, but uh, we'll see, we'll see who's in it, you know, but. It'll be an experiment. I'm sure I'll reflect on it uh, on the podcast a little bit. <laughs> but I, I guess before we, we kind of get too far off track, I want to come back to Injustice because this is a conversation I, I you and I were kind of having like prior, so we were kind of warming up, is this idea of um, <laughs> did, you know, for, for a lot of people, I, I'm guessing for our generation, you know, because we kind of grew up in a weird era where the, a lot of the 70s prog stuff um outside of like maybe Tom Sawyer on the radio, you didn't hear that stuff unless like you had an older brother or a dad or, or somebody that had like those old Genesis and yes records and rush records. Yeah. Um, in a way I, you know, is injustice for all. Like, do you see that as kind of like a, like a teenage manual for like Prague, like complicated songs that you have to sort of like process with like multiple movements and like, well, and it could be considered Prague because it's, it's, um, it's more complicated. It has more ideas than what's on the face value. Yeah. Because um, the, the prog stuff itself wasn't... Just having progressive elements, I don't think, turned me off. Mm-hmm. Or I, I don't even think I thought about it. Well, I don't think you knew you were supposed to think about it. Cause no, I but doubt it, it, you challenged my, it, um, it challenged my listening, yeah. for sure. And especially with... Uh, as much as people like to shit on Lars, his... His drumming on that, it was never what I expected. And mm-hmm. then it it almost informed what I expected later on. And also playing, oh, like gotcha. playing drums. Like yeah. He would accent a, you know, a snare hit or something where I would not, it doesn't make sense to do it really. Yeah. But it makes sense in the context of Metallica. And that was kind of his like moment, really moment to shine That's... as far as be, having like just weird options like stuff that just would not you wouldn't think he would do and some of that you can kind of hear in like some merciful fate stuff as well i don't know if that was pulled off yeah. of him or not but yeah the way he would accent things and the way um sometimes like his drumming was probably going faster than it should have been for the rest of the song but it works in the context of all this what it kind of sounds like you mentioned merciful fate but it, it, the feeling I, like the first time i really started to like process like abigail yeah mickey d seemed to be going too fast mm-hmm like almost kind of like off the rails sometimes, like I, you know, and, and not in a bad way. I, I love think it. we're so used to like growing up with, um, like guitars set the tone and the, like the rhythm section was just the back that was kind of in the background. Yeah. But to have that where you've got like a double time drum on a slower guitar. Yeah. That's something that Dismember did that a lot. Sure. Yeah. Finally, but like that, the first time I think I ever really encountered that was probably this album. Okay. Where it kind of made that makes sense, sense to me. It, like I, it made it I it didn't turn me off. It'd be like, like, Oh, that sounds cool. That yeah. makes sense. It's interesting that like that aspect of the rhythm section was so like spotlighted when of course the like major critique you hear about the record is the lack of bass. You know, yeah. I wonder if like, because Cliff wasn't there, if Lars was like overcompensating for the rhythm sections complexity, because Cliff had done so much accenting and different things with the bass to sort of add texture to songs. I know that he wanted to be heard, but also yeah. the, the warmth on that record is there's no warmth on that record. That's what at I mean. All. It's it very makes, very clinical. It makes yeah. sense that it's that it's tight. Everything and, everything feels like tense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the that's the whole thing. Like it's tense, 
it's cathartic, um, it's angry and calculated. It's mm-hmm. a it's a really really good everything. The reason everything is there. There's a there's a point for all of it. Yeah. There's a reason there's no base on the record. It makes sense now. Not just like hearing all the it's stories, not just a the punishment. context. Yeah, it's not a punishment yeah. for which New said. I mean, he, God, he was punished for years. I know. I and they've you know apologized. Like we didn't know what we were doing. We were drinking. Like this, we didn't have any type of. Um, we didn't realize what we were doing to you. I know. We were taking out all of our emotions on you. <laughs> so do you think you know? Do you think I know injustice like is a attempt to reconcile with the death of Cliff, but do you think that the hangover of that just sort of carried over the next like decade? And that's kind of why like Jason leaves and I think so. They just didn't, they just couldn't kind of fully deal with it and process. Yeah. I mean, they've even said that they had, um, uh, is it David Frick? Is that the guy from, yeah. From Rolling Stone? He did, he moderated a, uh, a talk with them when, uh, injustice for all got reissued. Mm -hmm. It's like a 40 minute thing you can see on YouTube, all shot in black and white. Cool. Um, but go, kind of going through all that stuff, talking, and everybody's very kind of effusively like, yeah, we ran him through the ringer. We didn't know how to deal with what was happening. It's kind of a metaphor for those guys because in a way that's kind of how they treated Mustaine. They just kind of fired him and didn't like explain why. Yeah. And that was what he was always like fucking butthurt about. That's why when they got Robert, they wanted him to know that he, you're our guy. Here's a million dollars. Yeah. Like all that stuff, you know. Everything makes a lot more sense with with age. Yeah, for sure. I, and, and these guys aren't that much older than what are they like, early fifties or something? Like maybe ten years my senior or something. Yeah, but, probably. Um, it takes a long fucking time to mature. Yeah, <laughs> especially a male. A male, and when you're in that type of like hyper testosterone environment, lots of anger, lots of alcohol, um, touring is terrible for anybody's fucking mental health. Yeah, and they were constantly on tour. Yeah through this era you know so uh, um, like i'm surprised they made it through as good as they did yeah and then after that the ex- you know extensive touring cycle for the black record was just stupid yeah the shit been binge live and shit tour i mean there were videos on headbangers ball for like two years just off of that let yeah. alone the black album you know yeah which i'm happy for because that's really where like they pumped uh search and destroy um, I think a wider audience kind of got to like get some of their back catalog for sure. Well, and it was on Headbangers Ball. Like there mm-hmm. would be a live performance of For Whom the Bell Tolls and Search and Destroy yeah. and um, something off Kill 'Em All. I'm trying. It's not Motor Breath. Um, what's the song that they were always playing? Um, shoot, Whiplash. They, yeah, they were doing a, yeah. a live performance of Whiplash a lot. So. You know, so like I don't know, like it was an education, like a gate, a gateway for for different people, but. Yeah, it's interesting because I I love for Injustice for All. Um, you know, it gets slagged sometimes by some people because of the the bass stuff and because it's not as warm as the the previous kind of records and stuff like that. Um, but I think it's I think it, yeah, it does kind of it holds up in its own right as. And I guess I never thought about that that the bass is not there for a reason. Yeah, they lost the bass. Yeah, why you can't replace that right yeah. now? We have to work. Like you're just here to help us out, but yeah. we got to make it through this before we can, yeah, really let you come through on the next album. And it's interesting when the songs tell, like the songs or even albums tell those kind of internal stories, uh, you know, subconsciously sometimes. Yeah, you know, that's why it's so rewarding to like look at this stuff in retrospect. Sure, any of this stuff. Like I think I understand black metal more. I appreciate it more now than, you know, it's a bunch of kids trying to fit in doing shit. It's not. Mm-hmm. 
evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're trying like one-upsmanship stuff. Like the the story behind this stuff is so much more interesting than what your you mm-hmm. know the surface stuff is. Yeah, and we talk, you know, like uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because that comes up a lot in my rock and roll history class when like I explain like why they did songs this way versus that way, you know. Um, you know, the, when we, like, I start my rock history class off. One of the first things I do is I play both versions of hurt Mm -hmm. because, um, I think it's an interesting dichotomy and you can use that to kind of talk about like how artists can take one song and reinterpret it and do something with it. And, you know, the, the nine inch nails version is very uh, disparate and kind of like almost like fading away in a lot of ways. Like the vocals are kind of like buried. There's a, like a, there's a sort of dissonant sort of white noise sound going on. Like, like in the background they'll sort of whole time whereas like the the johnny cash version is obviously much more singer songwriter kind of stripped down sort of thing and it's like naked and right there like yeah and the context of that you know he's like dying he's at the end of his life you know (laughs) it's like in the nine inch nails version is at the end of a concept record where that the song previous the title track downward spiral like the main character who's been going through all these things for 13 songs has killed himself and you hear a gunshot and a scream as like he's dying at the end of track 13 and then hurt is the last song. Mm -hmm. And that's like the sort of disparate spirit of your soul, like fading to nothingness. And so the song is like eroding kind of before your eyes. And there's like, it almost is like a a ghost, like watching themselves, like kind of fade from like, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, if you don't understand the context that you're like, why is this song recorded? So kind of shittily, you know, like it's, it's not clear. Like, you know, there's, there's impetus is to it, you know, like, you know, you talk about like any, in, the industrial music, why does it sound mechanical? Well, because it's trying to represent the sort of like technology and like, you know, the, it's, it's like dystopian stuff, you know, like yeah. why is, why is dystopian stuff so dark? Well, it's cause it's, well, it's taking the human element out of music to it, some degree. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so, so in a way it's, it's like a dystopian sort of prog record, <laughs> you know? And it's funny because, like, from Injustice for All, I can draw a direct line. Um, and I know, like, this is not a band that, that does as much for you now as maybe when you were younger. But, like, I can draw a line directly because I remember buying Injustice for All and then, like, almost immediately getting into, like, Queensryche Empire, which yeah. was another really socially conscious album. You know, like, they were sure. talking about drugs and crime and all these different. And so, like, for like a young mind, you you almost needed these sort of like stepping stones to get into like music that actually was like not nothing but a good time, you know, like to kind of walk it was, towards something. It was tough because it was something you, you had to actively seek out. It yeah. wasn't there wasn't YouTube to. I mean, you had it was harder to to penetrate this stuff, and you had to take that extra you know step of well, am I going to spend eight dollars on a tape just yeah. to try it out? Yeah. I've heard the one song, it sounds pretty okay, but is the whole thing going to be all right? I know. And I think sometimes, I think what, what Metallica had going for them was reputation. Mm-hmm. They had great album covers. Yeah. I mean, you look at Injustice for all, for Now, the cover, you just want to buy it. It yeah. fucking looks it's just great. amazing. You all know? the uh, all the other um, extra like surrounding imagery is all done by Pusshead. Yeah. Look, fan- that's some of the best like cover art and then merch. Mm-hmm. Of any like album cycle I can think of. When I think all like you look at like it's a white cover too. Metallica's sort of like schemes their visual imagery. Um, you know, ride the lightning, the sort of blues and whites, and the, the that I mean that master of puppets. Like, what shade is that? It's a red, but it's got it's such a like iconic 
shade, you know, that It's that like a saturated, uh, a lot of yellow saturation in it as is well. Is that what it is? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's got like almost like a maroon, a light maroon sort of aspect to it that I think is just incredibly iconic, you know, like yeah. it's not like a red you would, you've seen like anywhere else, you know? And so I think Metallica was really smart in their marketing in that sort of aspect. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, even the Black Album for what I mean, even the cover to Load and Reload with whatever the art scheme was to that, like it was common blood, man. It got people talking, you know, on some yeah. level. You know, I think I think you arrive at a sort of a bankruptcy of ideas when you get to like Saint Anger, and yeah. then you're, then I think it's just like almost like uh, struggle for relevancy again. There's... Yeah, like rich dudes just trying to like poke the bear to like do something that was like challenging themselves to be like kind of raw again without like. Oh, that's the reason why I don't I don't really disparage any of their eras because what do you have to be like when you're so hungry when you're doing Kill 'em All? Yeah. And then you have all this massive success and then you have somebody help you refine your vision with a black album. What the fuck do you do after that? Yeah. That's kind of that's kind of it. You know, I can't so for what when you're a millionaire what is there to struggle about? Mm-hmm. Can you really write that same type of music, especially lyrically? I don't think Hetfield's really been able to like grab, you know, that he wrote a lot of good stuff, but I mean, the last 30 years, it's been tough. Yeah. I mean, 30, what's 30? No, I'd say 20 because 91, well, 2001, yeah, almost 30 years. Almost 30 years. Yeah, you're right. Shit, we're getting old. Um, Yeah. So they've had like two thirds of their career is kind of shit. Yeah. I mean, there's some, there's some, I don't, I don't hate death magnetic, but it's yeah, got a lot of turds on it. For sure. I think the last two records have some hopefulness. I think, uh, I think they're too long. Yeah. They're, they need, they desperately need somebody to say, okay, guys, that's cool. You got all these riffs, but let's just do eight good songs and not do 12. Sure. Okay. Songs. Yeah. They're, they're almost like, um, they're, they're beyond anybody being able to kind of like edit them or like you said, they're almost like they're so disconnected from reality sometimes that yeah. they almost don't know how to police themselves. Well, they're, they're like an institution. Yeah. You know, they've got, I don't know how many people they employ. It's gotta be insane. They own all of their own. Um, uh, what do you call it? They own all their uh, music, the rights to all their music. Gotcha. Their, um, what is that called? Publishing rights. They're all the publishing rights. Yeah. So like the amount of, and they reissue the shit every... They're actually pretty judicious about how often they reissue stuff. Yeah. But they're putting out these definitive collections and stuff. They're great archive archivists. Yeah. There's like every single thing you could possibly ever want to know about every record is in there. That's the cool part, I guess, when you get down to it. You know, as much as people complain about like Lars or somebody like that, but he's still, I think, a fan. Yeah. Deep downside. Yeah. You know, is like <laughs> as removed from reality as he, he might be at times, you know? But he's a cheerleader. Um, he's a he's incredibly enthusiastic about shit, and that's I think what got him half their success for sure. His he was, hot spot was like he was willing key. to kick the door down. Yep. And but he had the the confidence of like, well, look what James wrote. Yep. Yeah. He, <laughs> he was like a salesman. You know, yeah. He was a salesman. The band needed. It but he time. also is great pick like with aesthetics as far not I'm not gonna say anything about what he said for the, what he did for the record cover of the last record. Um, but as far as him being able to take ideas and like, well, that's kind of cool. What if we do it like this? Yeah. And he, he has a good, he has a good ear for that type of stuff. 
you paint him in like the same light as like Carrie King or Gene Simmons, where like they're kind of the de facto spokespeople. So they take a lot of bullets probably, and they kind of have to come off a certain air to them. Yeah, I would think you so. Know? Yeah. I mean, I think Lars is like probably the warmest and fuzziest of those three. You know, I think Gene's probably the cockiest and Gene's Carrie's kind of just the... But also Gene is the least talented of that group you mentioned. Got it. The stuff yeah. he writes is kind of trite. Yeah. Paul is like the real... Um, Paul and I think Ace are probably the best songwriters out of yeah. that group. Yeah. Um, Gene was more the confrontational one. Sure. He's the demon. He's, yeah. he's the demon. He's the he demon. He was the the one as a kid you think is more interesting, but as I age, I think Ace is my favorite out of yeah, all those for guys. Sure. But yeah. I love Paul's yep. sappy 50s bullshit, too. Yep, yep, yeah. And Carrie's just... Carrie um, needed Jeff, though, too. Yeah, it's true. Now that he's Those untethered. guys are so much like, like Paul and Gene. It's yeah. crazy when you think about it now, because I think... Or even James and Lars. James yeah. is kind of quiet, and, yeah. you know, Je- and, Jeff and, was quiet all the time. And, and, but Jeff wrote the best riffs, mm-hmm. and then Carrie kept the fuel of the whole band going, but he he was also a great, yeah. great writer as well, but he needed that other... He needed somebody... He couldn't be the sole writer in the band, like yeah. he kind of is for the last record. I mean, I think opposing forces are really important to creativity. Yeah, absolutely. Just, you know, something, and I think you, you know... I don't know. I think that's why, like, I when I come back to full circle to, like, you know, Masters and stuff like that is, you know, Cliff was such an opposing force that was just different than those other three, you know, coming from, he was the only one that came from the Bay Area. He, mm-hmm. Like I said, he was bell bottoms. He was in kind of like 70s rock and, yeah. you know, things that like, not to say those guys weren't, but they were just different, you know, and they kind of like. But they were also willing to listen because they were, you know, coming from, you know, the L.A. scene mm-hmm. just was not inviting Yep. at that era with that, not like how like the punk and you know thrash scene was in san francisco you know death angel and then sure they played like fucking doa and the germs and all this other shit so it was like the weird hardcore shit and metal i think it was kind of i mean we you know, go off on this shit forever sure but, sure but the uh the whole like final finally meeting of the minds of crossover mm-hmm. is what extreme metal is it's the most important thing to ever happen to extreme metal yeah for yeah, punks make... to get over themselves and metal guys to get over themselves, like the shit you're doing is pretty cool. Yeah, the stuff you're doing is pretty cool. Which is why, like, uh, you know, you look at like a band like Discharge, kind of in the middle, yeah, of some of that and stuff. It's made me, I think, appreciate like, uh, I mean, I always loved suicidal tendencies, but I didn't understand their place in history or like even like old COC or you know things like that. Yeah. You know, so, but uh, but yeah, so we uh, like I said, we 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 weren't avoiding talking about Metallica. We just didn't know kind of how to kind of reproach it a little bit. Um, and I, you know, hopefully we said some interesting things here. You know, I'm sure you have a Metallica album that sort of speaks to you maybe, uh, as patrons out there. And if there's um, younger people that have something to say about any of the newer stuff, I'd sure be yeah. willing to entertain it. I mean, I, I can find, you know, if, if you were to tell me that load was your gateway in because you were 10 years old when load came out, like that makes sense to me. You yeah. know, I mean, there's catchy elements. So songs, um, you know, there's some good songs on load that I like, but, um, if it's St. Anger, I don't know. I'm curious because I, I don't... Success is a tough thing, man. Like, seeing same with filmmakers. We go back and forth with that. Like, you know, artistic filmmakers with integrity, then they do just this piece of shit because they need to pay the bills. Yeah. It's a tough... Yeah. But it, there's all there's so many factors to all of it. It's like, well, we've got families now. We've got mm-hmm. wives. We've got commitments. and It's I, tough. Art, trying to commoditize art is a really difficult sure, thing. Sure. Let me tell you about it. Yeah, and I think... Uh... I remember there's a great quote. Um, monetize, not commoditize. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there's a great quote about Hank Williams Sr. that comes from a documentary that uh, 
I write, you know, that I show in class when I kind of introduce early country music and stuff. And Hank Williams Sr. was so important to, you know, Johnny Cash and Dylan and, and so many people. And I think it's, uh, it's a guitar player that used to play with Tom Petty, uh, Marty Robbins, I think his name. And he says... Uh, the Marty Robbins? The Marty Robbins, yeah. The Marty Robbins. Yeah, I think. The country western guy? Yeah, long hair, dark hair. Well, Marty Robbins is a goofy looking guy. Hmm. Maybe it's not him. It's could, Marty it somebody. Same name. Yeah. Uh, but he uh, he kind of says he says you know Hank Williams did a lot of sins in his life and did a lot of bad shit and he's like but the songs forgive him for everything because he left that and I think you look at like just even if you just go with the first four Metallica's you can include the Black Elm in there or whatever but I think you look at that legacy of that and regardless of like your bitterness or how you feel with the the music that sort of happened in the last 25 plus years uh with Metallica like you can't ignore that Mm -hmm. you know so you know people want to get real butthurt about Metallica or or get up in arms because they're not making Ride the Lightning Part 2 or or whatever and, and that's fine but it's like punk rock punk rock is a youthful institution and I think thrash in some ways can be sort of a youthful institution you know House Slayer for a long time was able to go back to the well um, so successfully more than other bands uh, is pretty unique. I don't think mm-hmm. that's like common. Um, it is an extreme metal though. What's that? Yeah, it's weird how that. Yeah. But the, the thing is, they never the extreme metal bands never reach the success that Metallica or even I mean Slayer's the only one to reach that type of critical success that also kept a certain amount of integrity as far as the sound. Was but concerned. I also think Slayer had the they were on MTV the least of those, the big four, you know, I think the I think only time they're on was like, it was the season. Of the Abyss. Of the Abyss. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, you know, Slayer tasted success a bit, but they never, they weren't the arena band that like, especially Megadeth and Metallic, I think were yeah. at a certain point. I think Anthrax danced around it, especially when like, you know, bring the noise and a few things like I think they were kind of like hitting like a cultural sort of apex with, with yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of kept. Them. They never had enough. I don't think Anthrax ever had enough to say. Yeah, that's true. They're more f- fun. Yeah, for party sure. band or for whatever. Sure. Megadeth always had stuff they were talking about or yep. Dave was interested in. But, yep. but, but I guess I don't know. So that's my my hot take on on Metallica. At the end of the day, is like you know, if you're butthurt about this this you know the last kind of decades of Metallica, just again, I think their their first four records at least uh, excuse that. You know, like. Yeah we have that you know yeah. they gave us that they gave us you know what a more foundation. do you want that's i mean yeah <laughs> just don't just ignore saint anger you know ignore if you're pissed about lulu that it came out like they didn't care they just wanted to work with lou reed probably because who like as i can and I, I when that thing came out i was like oh god what the fuck but now like knowing more about you know velvet underground lou reed's transform all this kind of solo stuff his personality his um kind of big, larger than life persona yeah. that he would even want to work. What yeah. a fucking honor that would be. Yeah, You're not going to be like, nah, it's okay. Why not? Yeah. You know, why not? I mean, it's like if Bowie wanted to work with you, like yeah. who gives a shit what Bowie wants to do. Just yeah. do we it. We could just fart in yeah. a harmonica. Yeah, and that's totally cool. Like, you worked with Bowie, you know, it's like something you can kind of hang your hat on. So, and after you've hit a certain amount of success, you know, musically, you probably need of, those challenges. Yeah. Those kind of things come up. And if, you know, if you can rise to the occasion, cool. If not, then at least you tried. Sure. You know, some yeah. asshole on his computer at home bitching about the Lulu record that, you know, can't even yep. put some pants on. A couple, <laughs> couple dumbasses recording a podcast talking about Talica 40 years later. Trying to be trying yeah. to be positive, you know? know. We try. I mean, we're, you know, we can be contrarian about stuff as well, but uh, sure. 
My, I always have the, the artist's best interests in mind. Sure. Like it, I care so much is why I get angry. Yeah, I get that. I get that. The older I get, it's interesting, uh, especially doing like the history uh, of Heavy Metal Countdown, teaching the rock class, is I've become less bitter and less angry and more open to more things because I've just sort of like had to consider them contextually. Yeah. It's, it's why like and it's, it's easier too. You got to get over like Man of War and it helped me get over. Yeah. I was like, okay, they're important for this. Like it's not my favorite thing, but they're like, they fit here and they fit here. And Holding on to bitterness doesn't really yeah. do you a whole lot. I mean, there's still some shit I hate and I, sure. I actually take pride in hating it. It's yeah. kind of fun. It's like I'm an not exercise. Gonna, you know, we're not going to do a Nickelback show no, or anything. No, no. You know, and they're, they're a fun band to but sort so, of beat up. But somebody or something that has done something good at some point, it, there's always a reason to go back and look at it and see why and where it went off the tracks. And the story behind it is, you know, intensely interesting to me. Absolutely. And that's... uh. And that's why we did a contrarian kind of episode. It's not so contrarian, but at least like where we just kind of, you know, I don't know if you want to call me a master puppets guy, Mark and Injustice for All guy. It's fine. Whatever. You can do that. You know, but uh, I don't think Mark and I dislike any of the first four records really that much. I like all five. Any. The first yeah, five. Really, I think are, yeah. And yeah. I'm a, I'm a load apologist. I, I don't love all of it, but I think there's some stuff happening on it, but uh, it's better than uh dysfunctional by doc. And I'll say that. No, dysfunctional is great. I don't think so. Really? No. I would argue that. I'm not a fan. No, not no. at all. It sounds like they're trying too hard to be modern. Hmm. See that, that was, that's a, that's a symptom of the times as well. Though. Yeah, uh, that's something you don't. I have do some to do great now. songs on that. It's maybe okay. not the best Dokken record, but it's like a good record. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's yeah. It's probably like why. If it was just a Don Dokken solo record, it something. wouldn't have yeah. been met with quite so much. Yeah, I think they adjusted animus. better than other bands did to the '90s. I give them that. No one expected okay. Dokken to write like a decent rock <laughs> nobody, record. Nobody in the asked 90s. for it. Yeah. Well, they, uh, their last record was '87, and Dysfunctional's '94. So all of a sudden, yeah. seven years later, the original guys get back together and then make a competent record that didn't sound like they were trying to retread like '80s stuff. Not at all. That was. Uh, well, and plus, maybe that's maybe that's it was where... one of the first promos I got from. Uh, I think it was on Columbia or yeah, something. It was, it was. I got yeah. a full press pack. And I was like, "What the fuck do I get this for? We're doing a death metal magazine." And out of context, yeah. I, <laughs> so when was the some, last time you listened? To this there's function? some resentment. Uh, not too long ago, okay, but it okay. wasn't. I just I got to be in a mood. Gotcha. I no. hear you. I would make an argument. This though, I, if you wanted to argue this, I would just I would agree with you. Skid Row Subhuman Race is the best post '80s '80s metal song record it's a it's the uh, okay let me put it this way if sound of white noise is the best adjustment to trends of the 90s that any of the big four did that's what subhuman race is for me okay like it's skid row like skid row could already point it to it with slave to the grind that they mm -hmm. were gonna be able to like survive yeah hair metal because they weren't really hair metal they Not just kind of were like in it you know a little bit uh, but by association, I love, I, I would go to bat for that record any day of the week. It, it holds up great. It's just a great mid nineties. I don't know, alternative metal record or something like that. But anyways, that's a, it's a whole different episode. I think so. <laughs> Maybe next you, month, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. You, uh, you decide to, uh, pick to live is to die, right? To, to go out. Yes. Cause, uh, we talked about how just the, the emotion of Those, it all. Yeah. The, the, the twin, you know, the back and forth, um, Twin harmonies there toward the end are just like they're just burned in my brain. Yeah, and the, it's like it's almost like classical music in a way too. The yeah. symphonic kind of qualities to it. The guitar swells, and the, the song is like it's it goes from like it seems like it hits all the like acceptance, um, 
you know, like all the, the levels of grief denial kind of thing. Yep, and then anger. at the end it kind of comes back a little triumphant. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily like beating everything, but like, okay, fuck, I can handle this kind yep. of thing. So yeah, it's very cathartic. It's good. It's yeah. cool. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so we started with the bass solo from Cliff at the beginning on Orion and here we uh we process the grief of Chris. Yes. Cliff as well. So thank you, patrons. Uh, hopefully you dug this. Uh, we finally did address Metallica, hopefully to your liking. Um, it's another probably two-hour episode here, yeah, so hopefully yeah. you enjoy so, our rambles. Uh, you know, patrons, you know where to find us. You've already found us, so I don't need to sell anything on that. But, uh, you know, just uh, you know, give us some feedback on how you like the patron episodes. If you want us to continue in this kind of realm or if there's uh, other ideas you want us to try, you know, because Mark and I, we want to make these kind of easy and digestible for he and I, so we have to do a lot of research, but we also want to like have an anchor that we can kind of like yeah. work around. A I mean, little kind bit, of less so. music, more talking. Yeah, but if it's thought, you know, about a certain idea for a band sure. or something, that's yep. Or if it's like several. a if it's like a record where you don't think uh, we could do a, like a mainstream thing on because it's kind of just I don't know. Like we're we're looking for stuff like that, you know, like whatever ideas. We're kind of we're really open on this patron thing. Yeah. So yeah. But uh, so cool for uh, To Live Is To Die from Injustice For All. I'm Jason. And I'm Mark. Enjoy.
Thank you.